It is good to be with you, and it's good to have you with us this morning as we are moving into the month of March, and we've begun this new series on the words from the cross. You know, but somehow today our, our, our world has its attention focused in a lot of different places. Many are, have their eyes focused on Ukraine. I have friends that live in Ukraine and are ministering in Ukraine, and, and I try to stay in touch with them and see what's happening. I have friends in Russia, and they love their country too. Uh, so it's, it's a world where we're, we're just struggling everywhere we look. There's, there's ups and downs and highs and lows. And, and yet sometimes people are still looking to see what's going to happen next. It's not just over in Europe. Some people are watching China and North Korea, wondering uh, when they're going to get into the play of things in, in faraway places. And Still others are watching Wall Street and the economy and the gas prices and hoping that soon there's going to be an upturn or maybe a downturn in some things. Um, and there are many places that we can focus our attention on these days. And of course, some of those places are very much worth our attention. And, and others, really, we probably ought to even look there. But I think the best place that this world and modern man today can begin to put their attention on is a little hill just on the north side of the city of Jerusalem in Israel. Because on that place, something significant took place years ago. Very few people ever turned their thoughts to that little hill. But yet it was there that the greatest battle that was ever waged was fought. A battle against heaven and hell. And heaven was victorious because the commander-in-chief that was there that day and what he had done. It was there that heaven claimed the eternal victory over hell for all who will put their trust in Jesus. And I think there are a lot of places that play a part in, in our lives and in the life of Jesus as well while he was here in this world as he walked and as he talked and as he lived and breathed and interacted with men. We can go to Bethlehem. And we can see that beautiful city of Bethlehem where he was born. And maybe we can go to Bethany where he had a friend that, that was uh, a, just a close companion with him. And there was an incident where he died and Jesus brought him back to life. Or we might travel a little bit more to, to Nazareth and see that this little community in the middle of this mountainous valley, kind of hidden by everything else, is where Jesus was raised. And, and he learned how to, to do the trades of his father, Joseph, in, in being a carpenter or or, um, this, the, the tactile trades. Maybe we might travel up into northern Judea and, and get there around the, the Sea of Galilee and, and see how he interacted there with the fishermen and the tradesmen that were all along there, or, or going into Capernaum just up there on the north side, and, and, and it became a new home for him, so to speak. And, and, and a lot of the miraculous things that he did and the teachings that he taught were up in that region as he shared the wonderful things about what he was going to bring to this world there were the synagogues and the villages. And of course, we can't forget that great temple down in Jerusalem either, can we? And we know that he went there to pray, and we know that he went there, and, and he tried to set things aright with the people. And, but there were merely steps along the path to a place that's mentioned in our text this morning. All those other places pale in significance to that little hill just outside of Jerusalem. The Greeks called it topos kranion. The, the, the Hebrews, they called it Golgotha. 
The Romans and the Latins, they called it Calvary. And it's known to all of those people as the place of the skull. It was a hideous place. Because it was a place not only that seemed to appear and fashion itself within the rock as a, as a place that looked like a skull, but it was also a major player in death. And it was there that many men lost their lives. And, and all through the Gospels, Jesus has said that that place was his destiny, that that's where he was going to go, that that's where he was going to head towards. Even when his family tried to deter him from going, he set his face firmly to head there. And he did it because of you and me. He told Pontius Pilate that very morning, just before he died, that Calvary was the place where he needed to be. We see that in John chapter 18, verse 37. Pilate is talking with him, and he said, So, you're a king. And Jesus answered, well, you say that I'm a king. But then he makes this statement, for this purpose. What purpose? Standing before Pilate? Having a trial there to determine his innocence or his guilt, his life or his death? But, but listen to what he says there. He says, for this purpose, I was born... I think the Magi had something to say about that when they came and brought gifts. And the gifts that they brought him were gifts that really were, some of them, and used in preparation for death. He said, I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. I'd like for us to travel back to a place called Calvary this morning and meet one of the most unusual men that ever made it into heaven. It's not Jesus either, because even though he may be unusual compared to us, he had already been in heaven. But this guy is going to make it there. You'd think that really kind of unusual, a man on death row who is has got the lethal injection of poison going into his veins, that all of a sudden finds a reprieve and is saved. But that's kind of what happens here in our story. A man is on death row. Matter of fact, the execution is already in the process, and it's just a matter of time. And God steps in and intervenes in his life. That man, I think, is probably somebody we would consider, well, I wouldn't think I'd see him in heaven. And yet, as peculiar as it might be, and seemingly impossible, we're going to discover a man who's in heaven who never attended church, a man most likely had never been baptized, or who had even given a penny to the church at all, and yet his last earthly activity on life had been extremely sinister that caused him to be executed there on that little hill. Not only was he a thief, but quite possibly he was a murderer. And he deserved to die. Man began that morning, the last day of his life, maybe having breakfast with Satan. And yet he's going to end that day entering into paradise with Jesus. Let's turn to our text out of the book of Luke, chapter 23. And we're going to start down at, at, at verse 32. 
as we discover this story unfolding. We know that Jesus is being taken to the cross. But two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, And Jesus had said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And and they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people, they stood by watching. I'm amazed. But it wasn't just that. The rulers, they scoffed at him saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers, they they also mocked him coming up and, and offering sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There's also an inscription over him, the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were hanged, they railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other the other. This is the man I want us to look at today. He rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want us to begin just kind of looking at the the thief's place of salvation. I mean, that's really ultimately what this is. He had to go to the cross and be executed for his own crimes And that's where he finds salvation. Not not condemnation, not death. I mean, it's going to come as a result of his own, but he finds salvation in this moment as he's there paying for the penalty of his sins. That hill called Calvary, there he is as well, hanging upon a cross of crucifixion. And we find ourselves kind of in this horrible drama of the crucifixion. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, a close friend who's been traveling with him for three years. The, the Romans, they've beaten him, they have stripped him, they have mocked him, they have literally tore the flesh from his body. And he's now being led away along with these two other guys down this rocky, rough terrain, hauling this massive wooden beam to his death, to this place called the skull that's just outside Jerusalem, where he is going to be suspended along with these two other fellows until he breathes his last. 
there's this mob of riotous people, onlookers, that are just kind of watching and, and throwing the little insults at Jesus as he walks along the way. And he's surrounded by this Roman death squad. And, and they march step by step. And it almost seems almost too much for him to bear until he stumbles. And they grab some fella, who cares who he is, just grabbed him out of the crowd and made him help Jesus carry his cross so that they could do their job. And The condemned men at this horrible place of death, they're faced the sharpest agony of pains as nails were driven through their quivering flesh trying to avoid it by strokes of a hammer and the cruel hands of a soldier. They'd done that specifically to make sure that these fellows don't come off their crosses. Especially when they hoist them in the air and then drop them into that place. As Jesus was lifted up, I'm sure that all hell began to reverberate with celebration. Satan and the angels who fell with him out of heaven were probably celebrating the fact that they were victorious. They knew who he was. And he was going to die. I mean, even on the earthly plane, all the various divisions of people present were heckling Jesus and, and the rulers and the Roman soldiers. And, and even one of the guys who's being crucified right next to him can't have anything nice to say to him. Have you ever been insulted in front of a crowd? That's humiliating. But imagine how terrible if while you are dying... Your enemies are shouting insults and laughing at you. This is where we find Jesus. And yet somehow Jesus has the audacity to snatch victory from the jaws of death. I mean, just when the demonic gleed doesn't think it can get any greater, right in the middle of what seems to be the victory for Satan in his finest hour and his greatest triumph, Jesus is going to work another miracle right before he dies. And one of those who was being hanged with him believed. Believed in Jesus. And in that moment, the miraculous thing that Jesus does is he snatches him from the jaws of death and hell for all eternity. Satan loses. Even when he thinks it's celebration time, he loses. So let's look at this thief's remarkable faith. I mean, even at this late hour, the destiny of these two thieves was not yet unchangeable. They were going to die, but their ultimate destiny hangs in the balance Literally. It depends on their response to this one that's in between them, this man, Jesus. So how does this thief come to this faith in Christ? I mean, it's possible he'd never heard about Jesus. Maybe. But you have to understand, Jesus and his identity and his fame 
whether good or bad, was rampant all around Jerusalem and, and, Ju- and Judea and Samaria and really all throughout Israel. People were coming from everywhere to, because they were hearing significant things about Jesus. So for this man not to have even heard something about Jesus is unlikely. But he may never have met him face to face or stood side by side. But here we have this. As they were traveling that Via Dolorosa, that road that leads out to the skull, he may have heard the women crying and weeping. But in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 27 through 31, they followed with Jesus a great multitude of people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never borne, the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And I think he heard maybe the response that Jesus made to these women when he recognized they were crying about Jesus and his demise. When he said, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. How could this man be concerned about these people when he's the one who's about to be crucified? Maybe he wondered if anybody would ever weep for him as he's marching along with Jesus to his own death. Maybe it was when the nails were driven. And and I'm sure that he put up a fight. I mean, any good man's going to put up a fight to this end. And it probably took three or four soldiers to hold him down so they get those nails right through his wrist and through his feet to, to put him on that cross But yet when he turned and he watched Jesus, there was no fight. There was surrender. Or was it eagerness? There was something different about the way Jesus allowed the nails to go through. They had to have been painful just as well. But yet Jesus embraced those nails and he didn't struggle. Matter of fact, the only thing he did was he prayed for them. Well, how weird is that? I mean, it was common, according to the historians of that time, for crucified persons to shout and to curse at the onlookers of their pain instead of the other way around. I mean, it would, it would come from there. But Jesus didn't revile back at them, and he didn't cuss them out for their jeers and their laughter. He didn't spit back when they spit upon him. Matter of fact, he just embraced it all. Maybe it was when he noticed that inscription that was right there above the head of Jesus that simply said, you know, the Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. That little statement. Maybe that was all the Bible he needed. Just a little bit to introduce who this man was before him. 
And it read a lot about his strength and his dignity and his character. But I think it goes beyond all those other things that this thief would have been able to have witnessed and observed. I, I think it, it really transpired when he looked him face to face and in his eyes. Those eyes. And somehow, the eyes of Jesus, it almost uh, appeared as if he knew exactly what was going on in your very heart and soul. And when he looked at Jesus, he knew majesty. He knew kingliness. He understood love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. His eyes were none like the thief had ever seen before. Eyes of sorrow, yet full of love and Majesty and misery, suffering and sacredness, the, the Lamb of God. And he had to speak. I think there are a few lessons that we can learn from this believing thief. The first one is this. No one is ever too far gone. All right? No one is ever too far gone. Just about 28 years ago in Portage, Wisconsin, there was an average-sized room and that resembled kind of a doctor's office. There was nothing on the walls. It was very sterile. And Roy Ratcliffe sat alone at a table in the center of that room. He noticed that his sweat was trickling from his forehead and, and he could hear his heart pounding in the silence of that room. And Roy was a minister at the Church of Christ in, in Madison, Wisconsin, but he was about to meet a prisoner who wanted to be baptized. And he'd never met this prisoner before. As a matter of fact, the inmate was a murderer. And everyone would surely question his sincerity Perhaps it was a stunt that he was pulling. And the door opened, breaking the silence, and a six-foot man with blonde hair and blue eyes and glasses entered the room. Roy stood to greet him, and the man shook his hand, and he said, It's good to meet you. The guard, he didn't enter the room, but he closed the door behind Jeffrey Lionel Dahmer, leaving Roy Ratcliffe alone with him. Although Ratcliffe was a little frightened to meet the serial killer from Milwaukee, Jeffrey Dahmer was more nervous of the two in that room, that Columbia Corrections facility there on April 18, 1994. Ratcliffe realized that the Jeffrey Dahmer was serious about his decision to become a Christian. So they arranged to use a whirlpool there in the prison, and, and Dahmer climbed in, he got into a fetal position to fit underneath the water on May 10th, 1994, three weeks after they had their first meeting. And Roy Radcliffe baptized one of the world's most notorious serial killers. They know of at least 17 people that he had killed and eaten.
After the baptism, Ratcliffe insisted that he meet with Jeffrey Dahmer each week for Bible study to continue to bring God into his life. And they did until November 28, 1994, just months later, when Jeffrey Dahmer was killed along with another inmate by another inmate, Christopher Scavner. And you know what? You and I are probably going to get to meet Jeffrey Dahmer one of these days in heaven. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel to know that this thief on the cross who is right there with Jesus, as he's dying for his crimes, Jesus forgives him and tells him, you're going to get to go to heaven with me today. How does that make you feel? Justice? Mercy. You see, we should never give up on anyone. This man that is hanging with Jesus there is a thief, a murderer, who knows what else he's done. The apostle Paul was a persecutor of the church, and he murdered Christians, and he stood there watching others of the Jewish sect murder people who had put their faith in Jesus, and he was dragging them out of their homes and taking them before this kangaroo court and throwing them into prison, taking everything away from them, some of them even their lives, and yet this man meets Jesus on a road to Damascus, and he's forgiven. I, I struggle with things like that. But you know what? <laughs> if that man on the cross, and if Jeffrey Dahmer, and if Saul can find salvation, so can you. That's what it comes down to. You know, it doesn't matter what you may have done or who you may have been in your, in your life. Jesus Christ came so that we can have the forgiveness of our sins and we too can be with him in paradise. I mean, there's this revelation of God's grace that, that transforms right before us in this story here in the book of Luke. All right? The wages of sin is death. We know that. We're all sinners, and, and, and this man had to pay for his wrongdoings, and some think that they'll get away with their wrongs, and they may for a while, but nobody can ever elude the watchful eye of God. Christ was crucified between these two brutish men, and in them are re represented the two responses of men and women throughout history now. You're either going to acknowledge who Jesus is and seek a restoration relationship with him or you're going to laugh and jeer and accept your own condemnation see here at the cross of Christ all humanity is divided on one side you hear cursing on those who reject him and they go to hell and on the other side you have a humble confession of those who want to put their trust in him and they find salvation Years ago, the Barbers Association of America had gotten into this new thing. They were having a convention in New York City, and one of the things they wanted to do was they wanted to demonstrate to the nation this, uh, who they were and, and keep themselves before it. It's everybody wants everyone to buy into what you're doing, right? 
So during their meeting, they had come up with this wonderful idea that they were going to do. They were going to go down to one of the ghettos there in, in New York City, and they were going to take a man, a homeless man, and, and so they found this young vagrant who was sleeping on a park bench, and they offered him some easy money. All he had to do was let them make him over. And so that's what he did. He agreed. So they took pictures of him as to how he was before they put their hands upon him. All right? And, and he was there in his tattered clothes, his hair disheveled, and he was unshaven, and uh, he just, it was a mess. And then they began their miraculous work. They began to shampoo his hair, and they gave him a bath, and they cleaned him up, and, 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 and they even got him a massage and, and made him feel better. And then they started to, to trim and cut and, and manicure his hair and his beard. They shaved, and, and they, they put him in this beautiful silk suit and gave him a nice tie with fine leather shoes and socks. And, and, and the, the agent then put up this life-size picture showing the transformation that they had done these wonderful barbers. At the end were the words of this poster, this is what the barbers of America can do for a man. I want to go to a barber. How about you? <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is great. All right? I mean, their scheme worked, and the story was picked up, and it got nationwide coverage, and, and a hotel now offered this young man a job. All right? So that, and he would start the next Monday... But he never showed up. Matter of fact, weeks later they found this young man and they found him in a drunken stupor. His suit was all torn and filthy and his face was unshaven again. He'd gone back to his old ways. I mean, the barbers can do wonders for man on the outside. But it takes God and his miraculous care to do wonders on the inside. That's why we must be born again. It's an inside work that He does on us. Because it's only there when He does that that we take on the nature of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus can really change us. It's not about us. It's not about what we can do for one another. So what did this dying thief on the cross discover? I think he discovered grace. Matter of fact, I think that thief knows more about grace than a thousand theologians do. He was worthless. He was a loser. He deserved, as by his own words, deserved what he was getting. And yet, he got heaven. Paradise. That very day. Something happened, I think, as he hung there next to Jesus. He, he, he started to change his mind, possibly, about who Jesus was and, and about who he was and what it was all about. And he, he saw a man like him who was beaten, who was slashed, who was torn, who was ripped apart, who was barely even breathing. And, and, and we look at this man there and we say, what is it about him that's so different? But what he saw in Jesus was enough to realize the difference in him. And so he turns and he yells past Jesus to the other guy. And he says, don't you fear God? 
Don't you, don't you fear God? I mean, you, you are under the same sentence of condemnation. He says, we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. I think there are four things that distinguish this man from the first criminal. The first is this. His perspective is different. He asked that simple question. Do you fear God? I mean, do you not fear God? I mean, to think about this man who's riddling Jesus with his own self-pity. And so he looks at it, he looks at himself, and he knows because of who he is and the life he's lived, and he's lived those against God's laws, that he deserves what he's getting. And he fears what God is going to do to him now that man has justly condemned him. What's God going to do? If what he is going through is the worst that we can throw at him, what is the worst that God can offer him? And he was afraid. His awareness of his own failings is different than this other guy. He's being punished justly and he's getting what his deeds deserve. And no doubt he regrets probably at this moment in life what he has done. But it's too late. It's too late for regrets. He can't go back and change things. He can't get another sentence because his is now being carried out. He was also different in that his recognition of Jesus is different. He said, this man, he's done absolutely nothing wrong. He knows he's innocent, and yet here he is. He's paying for crimes that he did not commit. He's getting the exact same sentence you and I did, and he's innocent of it all. We're not told how he knows that. Perhaps he witnessed some of Jesus' interrogation. But whatever it is, he knows Jesus is not guilty of the crimes that he's being crucified for. However it was, he's not going to ridicule Jesus. Ridicule himself? Sure. Fourth, his plea to Jesus is different. The first criminal's words, they were taunting. But the second guy, there's an appeal to it and a recognition. Listen, listen to what he says there. He, he, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. <laughs> why would you want him to... Why? Remember me? Maybe he'd heard the statement Jesus made that he came to seek and to save the lost, the sinners, the sick. He didn't come into this world for those who were, quote, righteous. I think it's remarkable that he asked Jesus that question. Because it's one thing to recognize innocence, it's quite another to ask Jesus to be remembered when he enters into his kingdom. Isn't that what his disciples were asking? Hey, when we finally set up the kingdom, remember, I want to be on your right and I want to be on your left. 
who really was on his right, on his left, when he made that entrance into the kingdom? Who knows? Maybe that man is the one that's up there doing a lot of good. And he's one of the greatest messengers and servants of Christ. We'll find out one day, won't we? Maybe Dahmer will be on the left. Hmm. Well, at that moment, Jesus looked nothing like a king. He was under a death sentence. He had been beaten brutally, and he, he was nailed to the cross, and his naked body was there before everybody being humiliated. He was drenched in blood from head to literally foot. People stood around him, mocking him, and there were none of the trappings of majesty at all. Where was his army of warriors that could be commanded by him if he's a king? Where were his devoted followers? Everybody had fled and left him. And there was none of that. And yet this man saw a king on a cross. He was a man with as little faith as a mustard seed. And it was going to change his life. But his faith may have been small and his timing far from ideal, but still he cried out to Jesus, and that's all it took. That was enough. Jesus didn't make him wait. I mean, there was no bureaucratic, political request that he had to follow through to get there to put his appeal in writing or delayed tactics of whatever. I mean, it, it went right to him, and he received his answer immediately. And listen what Jesus answered to him. He said, truly, I say to you, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today. A passage has been the cause of a lot of controversy. I mean, as there, there are so many different theories about what happens when we die. Some believe that we go into this, this state of suspended animation for a period of time. It's called the doctrine of soul sleep. And so we're just kind of hovering there in death until a point in time when Jesus awakens us into heaven. Others, however, believe that our souls go immediately and consciously to the presence of Christ. And this is one of the most important texts when it deals with that because it says, you're going to be in heaven with me today. You're going to be in paradise with me today. There, there's a further consideration also. When Jesus begins a saying with the words, truly, I say to you, <laughs> you better believe it. All right? I mean... It, He's literally telling the truth I'm, to, the, to the thief. I'm telling you the truth. I'm being honest with you. I can't be more forthright about this statement I'm about to make. But in the moment here, when we die, you're going to get an opportunity to wake up in paradise with me. Isn't that awesome? And so this text, along with others in the New Testament, teaches that when we die, immediately our souls go to be with the Lord, to know His presence and to be with Him and, and, and to wait for the resurrection of the body. So we cross this valley of death. And we enter into life eternal. And as Jesus is speaking to this thief on the cross, he's also speaking to us if we put our trust and our faith in him. That today you can, if you die, be with him in paradise. But what is this paradise? I mean, is, is it heaven or is it a different place? 
Jesus told the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So apparently paradise is where God is because it's called the paradise of God. And Jesus told that thief that he would be with him in this paradise of God that very day. Now Paul once stated, the apostle, after he finally surrendered himself to Christ and he changed his life from being a persecutor of the church to a promoter of it, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 3 through 4, he says, And I know that this man, he's speaking of himself, caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So it must be a place so wonderful that he cannot even describe it to us, what this paradise is like. And apparently he was also told by God not to tell other people really about what it is like. But somewhere at some point in time, Paul spent time in this paradise with Jesus, educating himself about the fulfillment of Christ from what he had longed for in the Messiah of the Old Testament. This paradise is also said to be um, the bosom of Abraham. We see that in Luke chapter 16 as Jesus describes it. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, we understand that word paradise is referred to the Garden of Eden and it's referred to sometimes as paradise. Matter of fact, the Hebrew word for paradise is paradise. And that word comes from a Persian language, which means a park or a garden. So we're going to get to, at some point, walk in the garden. Not necessarily the Garden of Eden, but it's the Garden of God. It's heaven. The only real difference that I think I could find between heaven, word heaven, and the word paradise is the way that it's used primarily in the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament but yet they both describe the very presence of God and the absence of sorrow, suffering, and sin. And, and all of the Old Testament saints will be there along with those who are departed to be with the Lord today that are Christians. So those who have died in the faith, we know that they are present with the Lord right now because if a person is absent or deceased from this body, they're in the presence of God. Paul writes to us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. He says, yes, we're of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body. I would rather be dead and away from this body. Why? Because then I will be at home with the Lord. Amen. All right? So we know from the Scriptures that anyone that has repented and trusted in Christ is going to be with the Lord after they breathe their last breath in this world. That's His promise. A young, young man that um, was about to graduate from high school, and, and he had just been informed that he was going to be the valedictorian. He had a perfect 4.0 grade score. And the day before the graduation was to take place, the principal of the high school called him into his office. And he thought something was up. <laughs> is something is something been changed? Is there a mistake? Is what? And so he goes into the office nervously, and the, and the principal said to him, "Well, you've done it. You've made valedictorian. Congratulations. So so, what are your plans for your future?" Whew. 
He's there. So the young man said, well, I plan to go on to college and to, to get my bachelor's degree. Well, great, said the, the principal. Well, what, what then? Well, I'll, I'll then go on to medical school and eventually become a doctor. That's my, that's my desire. Well, what then, the principal asked. Well, I think then I, I plan on getting married, having children, and, and pursuing my career. And the principal asked again, what then? I guess I'll retire. What then? Well, you know, I'd, I'd like to travel around the world. What then? Eventually, I guess I'll die. And he asked him one more time, what then? Where will you spend eternity? You see, the 70, 80, or 90 years, or 100 years for some of you, that you're going to live on earth, they are nothing compared to eternity. Nothing. Nothing. They're not even a drop in the ocean. Eternity is not just a very long time. Eternity is forever. Do you get that? Forever. I think the older I get, and the more I look back and I see how fast time goes, and I think how much time I may have left. At some point, we begin to think we've got less time to live than we've already lived. Time is going. But eternity, it never ends. When we die, the question still is there, what then? Helen Franzi Bauer wrote this. Three crosses on a lonely hill, a thief on either side. And in between the Son of God, how wide a gulf, how wide. Yet, one thief spanned it with the words, O Lord, remember me. The other scoffed and turned aside to lost eternity. Forsaken is the hilltop now, and all the crosses are gone. But in believing hearts of men, the center cross lives on. And still, as when these sentinels first met earth's wandering view, the presence of the Lord divides upon which side are you. We all have to choose either to accept or to reject Jesus Christ. And He offers us forgiveness, and He offers us, really, paradise. The unbelieving thief never said, I reject you, Jesus. But not accepting him 
was his rejection. Jesus has told us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If Jesus is the only way to paradise, to heaven, how are you going to talk with him as you prepare to die? Will you ask him to remember you? Or will you scoff, mock, ridicule? Or will you just stand there silent and not do anything? I pray somehow we have an opportunity that everybody in this world will get that chance to say, remember me. Because he loves us and he will. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter all the circumstances of life that have formed and fashioned you to be who you are today. Jesus can take those and he will recreate somebody new in you. Somebody who is holy, righteous, perfect, (laughs) pure, innocent. That's what he offers. So I'm going to ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords? Do you acknowledge that he has the authority and the ability to forgive you of your sins and to offer you paradise, the salvation of your soul? Are you willing to acknowledge him before the scoffers and the mockers and those who are ridiculing him and say you believe and say you want to be counted with him even in his death? Do you want to die with him? You can't die on a cross with him, but you can die with him in baptism. And you can be buried with him under a watery grave, but then be raised into new life. And if you're united with his death, the scripture says you will also be united in his resurrection and you'll have life everlasting. But you've got to make that choice. I can't drag you with me. Do you believe? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so sorry of what I've done that put Jesus on the cross. I should have been there just like these other two men. I should pay the penalty for what I've done, and yet you've been so gracious to me. And I know that there are people right here in this room today that have read the same words that I've read in the scriptures, and and yet somehow they just haven't agreed with what you've offered. Father, may they acknowledge Jesus as Lord and King, as Savior and Shepherd, as the Holy One, in whom He becomes the Lamb of God that is offered for their sins. Father, may they 
reach out and, and, and accept what you offer. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, love, life. Even beyond death. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.